You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Now imagine for me this morning, imagine you decided you're going to go on a little trip. A big trip, actually, not just somewhere across America, not just to the, across overseas. You're going to go on an out-of-this-world trip to the moon. Well, you're going to need a few things. First, you're going to need a space shuttle. You're in luck. You get on Craigslist the other day, and when you know it, NASA is selling their spaceship on Craigslist. Great. So what you, do on, you do what you do on Craigslist. You go and you, you barter and you trade for some like free-range eggs that you got. You give them to NASA, they give you your space shuttle, and they even say, hey, we'll throw in the spacesuit for free. Now you're ready to go, right? You got your spaceship, you got your spacesuit, and you just say, hey, no big deal. I'm just going to launch this thing in my front yard. NASA, just back it up in the driveway, set it right there, and I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go to the moon. Well, you wouldn't get very far, would you? Without the right launch pad, I don't care what else you have, Man, that journey is going to be over before it starts, isn't it? Your beginning matters. Your starting point matters. Your launch pad matters. And that's what we're going to find in the verses we study today. We've been on a journey this summer, a journey to find out what the, God, what the Bible has to say about wisdom. So the psalm this morning specifically about the beginning of wisdom, the starting point of wisdom. And have you ever stopped to consider what's the starting point of your wisdom? So to the degree you pursue wisdom in your life, to, to the degree you seek understanding and you, and you seek how, try to figure out how God made the world and what God wants us to do, and then you try to apply that truth to your life, what's your motivation? What begins you on that journey and sets you out on that journey? Because it could be a lot of things. It could be a desire for a good reputation. You say, you know what, I want, when people see me, man, I want them to say, that's a good old boy right there. And so I learned to become wise towards people and wise with relationships. It could be wealth and success. You say, man, I want to have it all, and so I'm going to learn to be wise with business, wise at work, wise with my money, and that can be motivating me and driving me the whole time. It could just be a sense of comfort. Man, I want this life to be as good for me as it can be, right? So I'm going to learn to be wise with my time and wise with my resources and wise with my family simply because I want a comfortable life. So what should our starting point be according to the Bible when it comes to wisdom? It's this. It's our our big idea today. It's our big idea this morning. You must be wowed to become wise. You must be wowed to become wise. Let's read now. Psalm 111. We'll read the whole psalm, verse 1 through 10. It says this. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All of his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. 
He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. Now we're going to start at the end of this psalm, and that may seem a little weird. Here's why. This is a psalm. It's a poem, and it's an acrostic poem, which means each letter begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's not like a paragraph you might read in an epistle or something. You know, it's got a, a, a line of thought, a beginning, a middle, and an end. What organizes this poem is the Hebrew alphabet. And then the themes are kind of woven in and out of it. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to kind of weave in and out. We're going to hop around a little bit and see what the psalmist has to say to us this morning. So let's start at the end. Verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Y'all, this phrase is repeated over and over and over again in the Old Testament. You will find it in every genre of the Old Testament, in almost every book of the Old Testament, almost as if when God is very first giving his people his written word and revealing himself to his people through his word, he's saying, okay, but if you're ever going to get anywhere with this, your starting point matters immensely, and you need to make sure you're starting at the right place. And here it is, the fear of the Lord. Well, that doesn't sound very fun, does it? The fear of the Lord? He could have said a lot of things. Why didn't he say the joy of the Lord? or the love of the Lord, or the acceptance of the Lord, or the belief of the Lord. Of all the things he said, he could have said, why does he say the fear of the Lord? That just doesn't sound, that doesn't give me the chill bumps I want, does it? We need to understand this word fear. You know, fear, we usually think being terrorized by something, being really afraid of something. And you know, there is an element of this. You know, it's really interesting uh, if you go look in the Bible, anytime God appears to someone or an angel appears to someone, one of the first things they have to say is, don't be afraid, right? Why? Because these people, they see these otherworldly beings, they don't know where it came from or what it is or what it's there to do, and they're afraid. So the angel has to say, everybody chill, calm down, take a deep breath, I'm not here to smite you, I've got a message for you, don't be afraid, calm down. So there's this little element of fear when we see something way bigger than ourselves. But you know, there's two kinds of fear, isn't there? There's, there's fear that makes us run away, that makes us want to get away from something. So maybe you can picture yourself walking in the woods and you hear that rattle of a rattlesnake, right? And boy, you're gone. You want to get out of there. There's that kind of fear. There's also a fear that attracts us, that draws us near to people and things. Think about if you've ever met a celebrity or someone that you, man, you just think they're the bee's knees. They're the greatest thing ever. And you meet them for the first time, and all of a sudden, you turn into like a bumbling idiot, don't you? Right? Or guys, think about the first girl you had a crush on, maybe middle school, something like that, and she comes and talks to you for the first time. Right? And she says something like, hello. And you say something like, uh. And all of a sudden, you've forgotten the word hello right? Well, what's going on in that moment? It's, man, you meet someone that you have such high regard for, you have reverence for, you care what they think, and man, to you, they're up here, and you're down here, and you just don't want to look like an idiot, right? It's that kind of fear that draws us into people, that gives us reverence for things and people, and that's, that's part of this word. See, you know, this is one of those words that we don't have an exact English translation for, and so we translate it fear, but I think really the best translation is a combination of words, a combination of awe and reverence. It's 
awe, reverence for the Lord. That reverence you feel, and when you hold someone in just high esteem, and you care what they think, mixed with awe. You know, awe is just without words, jaw on the floor, can't believe what you're seeing. That's what awe is. A lot of times we experience this with nature. If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, listen, let me tell you all, if you've seen a picture of the Grand Canyon, you have not seen the Grand Canyon. I remember the first time I saw the Grand Canyon. I drive up there, and you, I remember getting out of the car and just looking, and I, I don't have words. My mouth is just open. My jaw is on the floor. I cannot believe how big and vast and beautiful this whole thing is, and y'all, I felt so small. I experienced this. I'll tell you probably the biggest time I've experienced this feeling. I was down in Biloxi, Mississippi, not long after Hurricane Katrina hit. We were there doing some relief work, and we decided we want to go down to the ocean, and we want to see it. And so we get in the car, and we drive down there, and it was hard to even get in there because the National Guard actually had a lot of the roads blocked to get down there. But eventually we get down you know, on that main drag, that main highway that runs a lot right along the ocean. And, y'all, this place used to be packed with restaurants, hotels, entertainment, all kind of things for tourists. You know what? It did not look like anything had been destroyed. It looked like there had never been anything there. I'll never forget y'all driving. And on my right, about 200 yards that way, is the ocean. And I look over here, and on my left, about 200 yards that way, is an oil tanker, at least one football field long, if not several. It's sitting on the ground about 400 yards away from the ocean. Jaw-draw. I don't have words to really explain what that looks like. And I'm thinking, what could have happened here? What force could there be to take that huge ship that used to be way over there and park it on the ground way over there? Wow. That feeling, that moment, that's what the Bible is saying we have to experience with God if we are going to become wise. There's a big irony here, isn't there? Because if wisdom is all about understanding all about grasping and comprehending and then applying truth to our life. All reverence is all about seeing something incomprehensible. It's all about seeing something we can't understand. It's almost as if the Bible is saying, hey, if you want to know a lot, here's a great place to start, understanding how much you don't know. If you want to understand how this world works, here's a great place to start, understanding that there is so much more than this world. Our journey to wisdom begins when we see the limits of ourself, when we feel small and we see how big he is. You must be wowed to become wise. The psalmist here, he's wowed by several things. First, we'll see in verse 1 through 3, he is wowed into worship. You must be wowed into worship. Verse 3 is full of wow. He is wowed by the splendor and majesty of God's works. Those words, splendor and majesty, those are otherworldly words. Splendor has this connotation of breathtaking, beautiful, blinding light. If you remember Saul on the road to Damascus, he's on his way to persecute the church, but he sees Jesus and he counters Jesus, and he would later describe it as, I saw a light brighter than the noonday sun. Brighter than the brightest light you have ever seen. That's what I saw. That's that word splendor. Majesty, it's, it's a Grand Canyon word. It's bigness, vastness mixed with beauty. It's something you see, see that you just can't even take in. 
you're enamored by it, you're enthralled by it. It is majestic. So this is what the psalmist used to describe God's works, and then he's wowed by God's righteousness. He says it endures forever. This word endure, y'all, this is a word used for heroes. So kids, I want you to think about your, your favorite superhero. What always happens with that superhero? He always wins. He always comes out on top. Now, it may look a little dicey for a minute, right? The bad guy may seem like he's getting up, hit the upper hand, but eventually that hero overcomes, doesn't he? Why? Because he's the biggest, he's the best, he's the most powerful. He endures. What I'm saying is God's righteousness is hero righteousness. It endures forever. So the psalmist, watch what happens. He's filled with a sense of wow, and it leads him in worship. And I just want to point out a couple things about how he worships. He worships publicly. Verse 1, he says, I'm going to praise God with the upright and with the congregation. That upright, that's his circle of friends, the circle of trust, his squad, okay? I'm so wowed by God, I'm going to tell my squad. The congregation, that's the church, that's the believing community. Y'all, here's what the psalmist is saying. Worship is a team sport. It's not an individual sport. Worship is a team sport. You know, and I think we can understand this in other things in our life. When we see something really amazing, or maybe you see the the latest, you know, cat video on YouTube that's the funniest thing you've ever seen, what's the next thing you got to do? You got to show somebody. You see something amazing, you're like, well, well, you got to see this. I remember the uh, original Jurassic Park movie. There's this famous scene where they, you know, they've gone to this park, and this wackadoo scientist has promised they'll see some real dinosaurs, and they're driving in the Jeep, and they're driving through the field. They haven't seen anything yet. And they're just in the Jeep talking, and I think they're looking at a map or something, and everyone's talking until all of a sudden the woman sees a real live dinosaur. She stands, everyone else keeps talking, and she just stops talking. And she stands up and stares, and then she grabs that man's head, turns his head, as if to say, you got to see this. Isn't that what we do with things that wow us? And you know what? I think, the, I think doing that isn't just an after effect of worship. I think it's actually a part of worship. I love what C.S. Lewis says in his book, Reflections on the Psalms. Listen to this quote. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Did you hear that? The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. So worship is a team sport. Next thing he does is worship with his mind in verse 2. So when we are in awe of God and we look around and see his works, man, we want to know everything we can about him. And so we study his creation. And actually, verse 2, you'll to this day find written above the entrance to the science department at Cambridge University. It's been there for over 100 years. One of the most prestigious universities, one of the most prestigious science departments, and this is the verse they have above their entrance. This is what we do with any subject we love, isn't it? We want to study. We want to learn everything we can about it. Maybe it's your favorite music, your movies, sport you're into, animals you're into. I'm reminded of this every time we go to the library with my son, Caleb. So my son, Caleb, over here loves dinosaurs. Isn't that right? Yep. Loves dinosaurs. 
And so you can guarantee, it's a guarantee, y'all, every time we go to the library, he is coming back with at least three books about dinosaurs. I'm more certain of that than I am that the sun's going to come out in the morning and the sky's blue. He's going to do it. Why? And he loves them, and so he wants to read and learn everything he can about them. So this is good news for me. I'm a nerd, y'all. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I'm going to assume there's some other nerds in here. What the Bible is saying here is nerds are worshipers too. Nerds are worshipers too, and here's why. Wisdom has a mind and a heart. Wisdom wisdom isn't just about the mind. Wisdom has a mind and a heart. Notice how this works. All of his works are studied not just by anyone, but by who? By those who delight in him. By those who have been wowed by him. By those who have their hearts captured by God. Those are the ones... And who study everything they can about him. It's only those who have been wowed by, God, wowed by God, that delight in him, that set out on this journey of wisdom. Your all reverence for God is your launching pad. To find out all you can about God. You must be wowed into worship. Next we see the psalmist in verse 4 through 6. He is wowed by God's works. And you have to be wowed by God's work. You know, this next section, it can, it can kind of read just like general praise. Like, oh, God, you're so neato. You're so wonderful. But actually, he's praising God for some very specific things. Each and, each and every section here is a direct reference to God's mighty, redemptive acts to the people of Israel in the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and the Torah. It's God setting his people free from their slavery in Egypt, leading them through the wilderness and having them enter the promised land and delivering his law to them from Mount Sinai. So he talks about first in verse 4, his wondrous works. This word uh, wondrous, it's like splendor, it's like majesty, it's otherworldly, completely unnatural, above and beyond comprehension, it's jaw-dropping. And that same phrase, wondrous works, again, it's one of those phrases you'll see all over the Old Testament referring to how God saved his people when they were enslaved in Egypt. He says he causes his works to be remembered, and this is a reference to Passover. So you probably remember Passover, death was coming, but if the people would, would slay this innocent lamb, put the blood of that lamb over their doorpost, and death would pass by them, and that's what happened, and they walked out of their slavery and into their freedom. And so God said, you know what, this... This mighty act of God, this mighty redemption of God is so great. I want this to be retold generation after generation after generation. And so he gave them the Passover feast. So every year they would sit down and they would retell what God had done and how he had saved them. Kids, it's like this. It's like when your birthday's coming up, right? And so what do you do? You put it on the calendar. You send out invitations. Why? Because it's a big day. It's an important day and you want everyone to remember it. You know, I think we need to be clear about why God wanted them to remember it. See, it's not just that God wanted to show them, hey, hey, remember, you know, what I did like 100 years ago. No, no, God wanted to remember that so that they would remember that he is still working. He is still doing these things. He's still active. He's still saves. He's saying to the people of Israel, listen, I want you to teach the next generation about how God freed you because one day your kids are going to experience a slavery of their own that they will need to be set free from. So they need to know who to turn to, and they need to know where to go. See, I think there's a danger in how we understand wisdom sometimes. 
many of us, many of the church today, and, and myself included, this is a big temptation for me. We can live as practical deists. This isn't the belief we would articulate. This isn't what we say we believe, but sometimes, if we're not careful, it's how we live. And a deist is one who believes this. Yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, there's a God. And you know what? He created everything. Yeah, this is all from him. But you know what? After he created, he just kind of stepped back, and he's kind of checked out right now. And so it's up to us to kind of figure this world out. It's up to us to figure out how this world works and do the best we can and make it on our own. Can we live like that sometimes? The Bible says, y'all, if we live that way, it only breeds self-reliance mixed with legalism. Self-reliance says, you know what? I got this book, so I can study this book, and I can learn this book, and I can figure out all the rules, and I can make it work on my own. And then if I do that, that's when the legalism steps in. It says, now, okay, God, I figured out your world. I did what I was supposed to do, and so now you owe me good things, right? I figured out how the clock works here. I figured out how the system works, and I did all the right things, and so now you owe me. Here's the problem, y'all. There is no wow in that. There is no wondrous works, no splendor, no majesty. And the Bible says if you follow that path, if you and I follow that path towards living a practical deism, we are not wise, we are fools. Because we have forgotten that the God of the universe is still at work redeeming his people. He is not far off. He is close. He is working today. So this is why you have to be wowed by his works. Remember that he still works. The psalmist revisits this in verse 9. He says, God sent redemption to his people. This, This word redemption is actually a word used in the slave trade. It is like a ransom, a fee paid to buy back a slave, to buy a slave's freedom. And back in biblical times, y'all, it's actually fairly common for people to sell themselves into slavery. I know it sounds kind of crazy, but if you didn't have money, if you couldn't make ends meet, there's no bank, nowhere you can go to loan money. So people would sell themselves into slavery. The problem was once you sold yourself into slavery, it was very, very difficult to ever get out of it, to ever pay your way out. Kind of like the original student loans, right? And so a redeemer was one who stepped in and said, I will pay that ransom, I will pay that redemption fee, set that person free. And again, this is direct reference to Passover. That innocent lamb died so the people of Israel could be set free. Men and women, can you imagine the wow Israel felt when death visited them, saw the blood of the lamb on that doorway and passed right by, and then imagine the wow when they watched themselves walk out of their slavery, 400 years in slavery. No one alive ever remembered anything except being in slavery, and they watched themselves walk out. Wow. The psalmist remembers God's faithfulness in the wilderness. Verse 5, he says, God provides food. That's a reference. You may remember when the Israelites were in the desert, every day, every day, God showed up and provided them manna, food from heaven to provide for them. Now, there's something y'all need to know about the desert they were in. Actually, in in Hebrew, there's several words that can be used to describe wilderness or desert with varying degrees uh, of severity. The word here, the, the desert they were in, is absolutely the harshest kind of desert there is. We're talking no food, no water, 
Nothing survives desert. At the place when Israel went, they were faced with the absolute limit of their knowledge and ability. ability. There's nothing there, y'all. So, hey, I don't care how smart you are, how wise you are, how good you are at taking care of yourself, how many Bear Grylls episodes you've watched. If God doesn't show up every day and provide for you, you will not survive. Most of us hate the wilderness, don't we? Man, we hate the desert. We hate those places in life where we're suffering, we're famished. The world around us seems scarce. We don't know where our food's going to come from, maybe physically, maybe spiritually. We don't know where we'll get the strength make it through the day, or comfort, or healing, or conquer our sorrow. Fact, most of human wisdom is used to make sure we never have to enter the desert again, isn't it? To make sure we have everything we need, to make sure we avoid suffering, to make sure we stay in control. But here's what God says. God says, you know what? In the wilderness, it's where you're wowed by me. You're wowed by my blessing, my protection, my faithfulness, and the power of my covenant towards you. And so according to the Bible, you know what? If you want to be wise, go to the desert. Go to the desert and be wowed by his works for you. The psalmist goes on to praise God for how he led his people into the promised land. So God had redeemed his people. He had set them free from their slavery. And then he'd provided for them in the desert as they learned what it was like to be his people. But you know what? He had promised that there would come a day when they would enter a land overflowing with everything they needed. And they could live forever as his people, and he would be their God. You know what? There was a problem. When they got there, there were obstacles in the way. They were big, giant, mean people. So the Israelites got there, and they saw these big, giant people. And you know what? They said, there's no way. We can't do this. Journey ends here. We, there's no way we can defeat these people. And so they cowered in fear at the giants they saw before them, at the obstacles they saw before them. Well, all, really, except two people, Joshua and Caleb. And this is actually part of the reason we named our son Caleb, because of what the Bible says about Caleb here. I want to read this verse to you. We have this verse in our son's room, Numbers 14, 24 says this about Caleb. He says, But my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Here's what, here's what God's saying about Caleb here. He's been wowed by me. He has seen me. He has seen that I'm bigger, and so he believes it. Right? Now listen, imagine you're, you're a military strategist in Israel. You are wise in the ways of armies and military. And so you're sitting there and you're doing what a wise person should do. You're, you're calculating your force strength. And you say, well, there's a lot more of them. They're way bigger than us. Uh, they have a lot of weapons and we have nothing. We've been wandering in the desert for years. They've got the cities. They've got the walls. They've got the fortresses. They've got the high ground. They've got everything. And so if you're in those shoes, yeah, it's absolute foolishness to attack those people. It's absolute foolishness to try to take that land. Unless, like Caleb, you've been wowed by God and you believe him and you follow him fully. And if that's the case, isn't it the height of foolishness to think some eight-foot-tall dude is going to stop the power of God? 
It's going to stop the God who's provided for us supernaturally in the wilderness and freed us from our slavery after 400 years. You tell me who's wise. It's the one who, like Caleb, has been wowed by the works of God. Finally, you have to be wowed by his words. Be wowed by God's words. Verse 7 and 8 are a reference to Mount Sinai, where Moses went up the mountain to get God's law. And in God's law, his commandments were a revelation of who God is, of his nature. He said, I'm going I'm to further reveal myself to you, and I'm going to show you how to follow me. And there's something in particular the psalmist points out here. In verse 8, he says, he's wowed by the way his, uh, he says his precepts, that's particularly his commandments. He says they're established forever. Now, established means absolutely certain. Here's what he's saying. God's commandments are absolutely certain forever and ever. But then there's a problem in verse 8. So he says, okay, commandments, absolutely certain forever and ever. Then he throws this out there. And they're performed with faithfulness and uprightness. Now, you and I know, even when, when they were at Mount Sinai, when God gave them only 10 rules, and before Moses could make it down, they were already breaking one of them, right? And you know you, and you know me. And so if God's commandments are established forever, how can that be when I know my performance? There is no way it is faithful and upright. Maybe sometimes I'm able to perform them, but perform with complete faithfulness and uprightness? How can that be? How can the psalmist say this? And, and if they can't be performed with faithfulness and uprightness, then in what sense can they endure forever and ever? That makes no sense. Well, there's a clue. and You kind of see it in the original language. He's drawing a parallel here. So in verse 8, his, his commandments are performed with faithfulness and uprightness. But in verse 7, he talks about works. And he called those works faithful. And so that's the same word as faithful and upright. And just, which is a synonym for upright. But in verse 7, whose works does he call faithful and just? It's his. It's God's. And so even in the original language, all this, this is not the psalmist praising God for his commandments and praising the Israelites for performing them. What, what he's wowed by God is how he both gives and executes his own word. The psalmist is wowed, not just by how God gives his law, but how God performs his law. And men and women, I have to tell you, this is where the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God absolutely part ways. So you go to 1 Corinthians 1, verse, chapter 1, verse 22 and 24. It says this. It says, listen, if you really want to be wise, if you really want to be wise, you have to be wowed by the wisdom of the cross. See, these verses say, you know what? There's a lot of people in this world who consider themselves wise who are actually fools. And conversely, there is a wisdom that seems absolutely, completely ridiculous to those who have not been wowed by God. And it's this. It's the wisdom of the cross. It's the wisdom of the cross. Because the wisdom of the cross shows us redemption. See, it works like this, y'all. Only a fool, only a fool can look at the cost of their sin and say, yeah, I can pay that. Yeah, I've got the money in the bank to cover that check. Similarly, only a fool can look back on their life and the destruction, the sadness, the death, all the consequences of all our sin and say, what's slavery? 
I'm not in slavery. I don't need to be set free. I'm fine. Only a fool can say that. You know what the wise does? The wise person realizes their slavery, their bondage. And then they are wowed when they see the God of the universe die so that they may live. Wow. Wow. The wisdom of the cross shows us righteousness, the righteousness that endures forever. See, it works like this, y'all. Only a fool, only a fool can look at the complete holiness, righteousness of God and say, yeah, I can meet that standard. Only a fool says, you know what? I want the covenant to be based on my performance. This faithfulness and uprightness thing, I got that. I think I got that down. But the wise, wise, listen, the wise looks at his weak, minuscule, filthy rags righteousness. Then he sees God's hero righteousness. And he is wowed when Jesus says here, take my righteousness. He is wowed when the God of the universe says, I accept you, I delight in you, I love you. You are established before me forever and ever based on the righteousness of another. Wow. If you want to be wise, you have to be wowed. Wowed into worship, wowed by his works, wowed by his words, but most of all, wowed by the wisdom of the cross. Then you're ready to start your journey. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.